Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers Podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. I'm Liza Berger, editor of McKnight's Home Care. The so-called Medicaid unwinding has affected many older adults and people with disabilities. Damon Terzaghi, director of Medicaid HCBS for NAC, talked to me about why he's keeping an eye on these groups. He also spoke about another controversial Medicaid topic, the 80-20 provision in the Medicaid access proposed rule. Welcome to the podcast, Damon. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So you really have been digging into this Medicaid unwinding and how it has been affecting those in home and community-based services. Can we just take a step back and get an understanding about what this unwinding or redetermination period means, briefly what it is, what led to it, and why has it proven to be such a, a thorny thicket for states? Absolutely. So going back about three years when the COVID-19 pandemic started, Congress gave states additional funding to manage their Medicaid programs during that time of uncertainty. One of the things that was attached to that additional funding was this what we called continuous eligibility requirement, which essentially said that anybody who was already enrolled in Medicaid or who became enrolled during that time frame was kept on the program. And they were kept on the program even if their circumstances changed and they no longer met the regular eligibility criteria. So beginning April of this year, that continuous eligibility requirement ended and states could once again begin disenrolling individuals. Now, over the three-year period, lots more individuals came onto the Medicaid program nationally. Many states paused redeterminations, recognizing that there was no real reason to continually do it if those individuals were going to remain on the program anyway. So we're now at this point where a lot of this work has built up, the roles have swelled, and states now have an immense amount of work required to go through and look at every individual on the program figure out should they still be enrolled or not, and then potentially remove those individuals who no longer meet eligibility criteria. Mm -hmm. And the area you've been paying close attention to is the number of elderly and disabled who have been taken off the Medicaid rolls. Why are you looking at these two groups? Well, I think that when you look at some of the national conversation around the redetermination, the unwinding, as many people are calling it, there's a lot of focus in news articles, a lot of focus in conference presentations about children and younger individuals. I think that there's a strong argument to be made, and I think the data is proving that this unwinding process is also extremely impactful to older adults and people with disabilities. And I don't think that the conversation has really recognized that as much as it needs to. So my goal has really been to try and unpack the information that's available, shine a spotlight on these individuals that maybe aren't getting as much attention and hopefully raise awareness to the point where these participants are being adequately and appropriately focused on so that they don't unnecessarily lose coverage. Mm -hmm. The numbers change really on a daily basis, don't they? Last week, we wrote a story that 
said that you found that 76,630 older adults and people with disability have been disenrolled in 22 states. This equated to about 5% of total disenrollments in those states. Where are we at today? Yeah, the numbers really do change substantially on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis. So that story came out last week, and in the interim period, a number of states released updated figures. So as of today, I have 140,000 individuals in 23 states, which equates to about 6.2% of the disenrollments in those states So a pretty significant increase, you can tell. Some of that's because in our previous article, we didn't have California data, and California being the largest state has a substantially outsized proportion of those individuals, but also many other states are updating their numbers, and the numbers continue to go up. How alarming is this to you? Well, there's kind of two ways to look at it. I think that some of it is It's not necessarily alarming if this represents individuals that are appropriately transitioning to other sources of health insurance. With that being said, I see these numbers and I get pretty concerned. And the reason I get concerned is for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's a lot of emphasis on procedural disenrollments. And a procedural disenrollment is what they call it when the individual is removed from Medicaid, not because the state has determined that they no longer meet the eligibility criteria, but because paperwork wasn't returned or wasn't filled out correctly or all of the necessary documentation wasn't submitted in concert with their reapplication form. Now, procedural disenrollments have made up a substantial, disproportionately high part of the disenrollment in this unwinding period. And I haven't been able to isolate the proportion of older adults and people with disabilities who were procedural disenrollments yet, but I would speculate that they're a pretty high percentage because these are populations that have more complex eligibility criteria. So for the children that are being disenrolled and talked about, there isn't the same level of medical documentation necessary to prove that they have a disability in order to remain on the program. The way the Medicaid eligibility works, older adults and people with disabilities frequently have asset tests where other parts of the program do not. So there's a lot more documentation around bank accounts, around the value of one's home and those sorts of things that that are not required elsewhere and can lead to a higher number of these procedural disenrollments. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to dig into exactly what is the procedural hang-up that's forcing these people to be disenrolled. If you can identify that, would it then be possible for states to come up with a solution to make this issue better or less of a problem for the disenrollments? It's a good question. CMS has given states some flexibilities through the unwinding period to potentially ease some of the requirements. So, for example, there's a long-standing requirement in the Medicaid program that states use an electronic asset verification system to try and identify unreported bank accounts and those sorts of things. That asset verification system can be very cumbersome, complex, lead to a lot of delays and other sorts of things. So 
CMS has said states could potentially waive that just during this period of really unprecedented eligibility work that's happening around the country. So I think that there are ways states could make it easier on these individuals, hopefully reduce the number of procedural disenrollments. And I think that an emphasis on older adults and people with disabilities is really appropriate for doing this because one of the points that I really am trying to make is some of the individuals who are disenrolled are finding coverage through the health insurance exchanges or private insurance. And that's an argument that's being made to say this disenrollment percentage around the country isn't necessarily as impactful as it may seem at face value because there are other sources of care these individuals are finding. That might be true, but for older adults and people with disabilities, especially those that are receiving in-home care, home and community-based services, there aren't other insurance sources that cover these types of long-term care, these types of comprehensive in-home support. And losing Medicaid can be extremely impactful on their overall health and well-being. And we really don't want to see that happen if it is truly a procedural disenrollment and not because the individual is no longer eligible for the program. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems a little far-fetched that those people are finding other sources of their health care, right? They're probably going without. I think that it really depends. I think that some of the state data shows that people are finding other sources of health care. But again, that data is in the aggregate and it's not really broken out to identify whether older adults and people with disabilities are finding other sources of care. Mm -hmm. And even more so, if they are, does that care provide all of the services and supports that they need? Right. What are the long-term consequences of this number of people being disenrolled? Well, I do think that particularly when we're talking about the older adults and people with disabilities, We could see a decline in health status, potentially if they don't realize they've been disenrolled and go to refill prescription drugs and find out that they've been denied Medicaid coverage. There could be a gap or a lapse in them getting access to prescription drug care, for example. Even if they do go back and re-enroll, that delay could be really detrimental to their overall health and well-being. I think that if there are individuals who are losing access to home-based care, That could sometimes be a life or death situation, could lead to hospitalizations, could lead to longer term nursing home stays. And it's really important to make sure that these individuals are receiving the care that they're both eligible for and really need to live in the community. Mm -hmm. I want to turn now to another very important and consequential issue in home and community-based services. And that is the so-called 80-20 provision in the access rule that was proposed in April. Let's just, again, take a brief look at this provision. Would you mind giving us a summary of what it would do? Sure. So this was part of a very comprehensive, wide-ranging rule, the Medicaid access rule. There was one specific provision, which we're calling the 80-20 provision, the 80-20 policy. And what this would do is for certain Medicaid home and community-based services, not all home and community-based services, it would require that 80% of all Medicaid payments be spent on direct worker compensation. It's a very nuanced technical proposal. It only applies to homemaker, home health 
aid and personal care services. And it only applies to certain parts of the Medicaid home and community-based services system, not all of it. So it's very kind of nuanced and technical, but overall, it's a pretty impactful proposal that we have serious concerns about. I mean, it has rattled providers like I haven't seen other than maybe the home health rule. Why are they so up in arms about this proposal? Why are you perhaps so up in arms about this proposal? We are very staunchly opposed to this provision in the rule. I'll be very upfront on that part, which is our biggest area of concern in Medicaid right now. I would say equal to, if not surpassing the unwinding we just talked about. The reason is because the way that the rule was written doesn't really take into account the nuances and the complexities of delivering Medicaid home-based care. Let me give you some specific examples. The 21st Century Cures Act included a requirement that home and community-based services, um, personal care services, have electronic visit verification associated with them. They have to do an electronic check-in, check-out, where location, time of service, et cetera, is all captured electronically. This is a pretty substantial expense for agencies to contract with an EVV vendor to make sure that the worker has appropriate technology and those sorts of things. Those expenses all fall under the 20%. Most states have some sorts of supervision and training requirements. We would argue it's a bad thing if they don't because that's a health safety overall welfare issue. If there are nurses that are supervising direct care workers as part of those regulatory requirements, they go into the 20%. A lot of states have requirements of physical buildings, having a physical presence in a lot of the communities that the home care agencies operate in. Those all fall into the 20% too, not to mention any sorts of quality improvement, electronic health information technology, all those sorts of things get lumped into the 20% travel time to participants. All those things together just make for a really untenable situation if you're saying, well, you have to do all of these things as a requirement of delivering Medicaid services. And by the way, you only have 20% of the rate to pay for them with. And by the way, that rate's pretty low in most of the state's asset stands today. So squeezing all of those required expenses into that 20% of a low rate, pretty much impossible in a lot of places. What okay. is that percentage? Does it depend on the state, but approximately what percentage is spent on those administrative and other costs? It's a great question. So one of the things that we did on the 80-20 provision is we went through where there was data available and looked at all of the state rate studies had been done to kind of pull apart the different components that go into the rate. I would say on average, it's about 70 to 75% of the state payment rates were spent on CMS's direct definition of worker compensation. So 80-20, you might hear that and say, oh, well, 70%, getting to 80% isn't that bad. It kind of is, because if we're talking about going from, let's, let's just use a hypothetical, it's a $100 payment. $100 payment, you're going from spending $30 of that on administrative to $20 of it on administrative. That's a 33% cut in your overhead allotment, which is substantial when you're talking about meeting all of those requirements. 
we went through and we pulled apart the independent cost studies for over a dozen states where they were available publicly online. Not a single one of those states met the 80-20 requirements. Right. And just to be clear, is this the payment that you're basing it on? Is that a state payment or the federal and state combined? It's the federal and state combined. So what we're looking at is what is the actual total reimbursement given to the provider for delivering Medicaid care. What's next? I know you've submitted comments. I believe CMS extended the deadline for comments. What are you going to be doing next in terms of advocacy and when is this thing supposed to be coming out? Yeah, it's a great question. We asked for a delay in the comment period for more time to submit and CMS actually did not do that. The comment period was not extended, much to our chagrin. But with that being said, we are now in a period where CMS is collecting reviewing, responding to all of the comments submitted. There were a lot of them. There were over 2,100 comments submitted on this specific rule. So we anticipate it's gonna take CMS some time to get through them all and and work through it. We also know that they're operating under kind of a self-imposed deadline. They really want to get this rule out and finalized before what we call the regulatory pullback period where potentially a new administration could rescind regulations that were recently issued by a prior administration. So with that said, I think that they're going to try to get this out very, at the latest, very early 2024. You know, I think our original projections were maybe December 2023, maybe slipping to January 2024, but that's really what they're looking to do. In terms of what CMS is going to do with all of the opposition and, as you said, the real consternation that exists within the providers, we're not really sure. We know that this is a proposal that came from higher ups in the administration. We know that this is something that's really viewed as a priority to support workers in the community. And we would say this is a noble cause that is poorly executed. We can fully agree that there needs to be more done in Medicaid to support workers, to support their payment. We just think this particular approach is is really misguided. So our hope is that they'll take into account some of the comments submitted. We actually gave them a detailed alternative proposal we think could meet some of the goals without the same downsides. And our hope is that they'll modify it in a way that supports the workers without, we would argue, devastating the home care industry and reducing access to home and community-based services and Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So we'll just have to wait and see. Unfortunately, that's where we're at right now. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Damon Terzaghi of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com.